From Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Nikki. This is Podcast in Place, a series about life in Alaska during the COVID-19 pandemic. Last month, COVID-19 vaccines were approved for children as young as six months old. For many parents, this news brought relief, and for others, continued concern. For this episode, we're going to hear from Dr. Michelle Nace, a pediatrician in Fairbanks, Alaska, who also works as a staff physician for the State Health Department. At Me senior producer Quinn White spoke with Dr. Nace about the vaccine now being available for young children, concerns parents have had, and how disinformation around COVID vaccines has affected the overall culture of pediatric care. They spoke on July 12th, 2022. Since the beginning of the pandemic, I've spoken with a lot of doctors and nurses, but they work with adult patients. And up until recently, little kids weren't able to get vaccinated. So what have you been doing this whole time? <laughs> so, um... The, the, what have I been doing the whole time with that? I have been working with families, educating them about COVID and then giving them the information about the vaccines as different ones have rolled out to help them feel more comfortable, be able to uh, kind of process that information so they can make the best decision that's right for their family. So, and hopefully that includes the getting the vaccination as they, it became able. Awesome. So what are, some of the concerns that parents are expressing about vaccinating their young children. Are you specifically talking about the youngest, the last one that came out, the six months to five years, or just kind of all of them in general? I'm really curious about the six months to five years because this is just what's really new and what's rolling out right now. Sure. So I think one of the things that will come to mind is, one, is it necessary? Is it necessary to vaccinate this younger group, given that we're in a different place than we were in 2020 when it first came out in terms of uh, the concerns to severe illness. And we know a lot more about it now. And so as we get more information and the severity and life-threatening part of COVID seems to be less for children and it's been more understood, that parents are worrying, worrying that benefit and that risk to, is this really something that we need to do um, or not? So when parents are weighing that risk, what, how do you respond to those concerns? Um, in that younger age group, we talk about that they're absolutely right. The risk is less um, to those younger groups than it might be to an adult or to someone who has increased risk factors or immune compromise. Absolutely, they're right, it is. But it's not zero. And you know, children shouldn't die children shouldn't have to be admitted to the hospital. So if there's something that we can do um, to help prevent those things happening, we wanna do them. And so we do have kids who are hospitalized with this illness, even in that younger age group, we do have kids who die. And if we um, can do something to help decrease that risk to families, that's what we wanna do. And so that's why we offer the vaccine. Absolutely, you wanna do anything you can to keep children healthy, right? Absolutely. So can you maybe give me a story or an example to help me kind of understand where parents are coming from in their concerns? So I think they're coming 
at the beginning, when we all felt that in that March of 2020, it was, it was panic. It was also concern and not knowing and not having knowledge and time. You don't know exactly what this um, virus can do. And so over the past, so it's, you know, it's been two years, we have more information. And with that information comes a little more, um, um, processing calm about it and a little more, okay, I see what's happened. I can visually see it. I'm not just listening to what might happen. I'm seeing some things that did happen. So um, when they look at all of that, I think that makes them feel a little more comfortable with holding back on the vaccine. But what we are seeing is, as I said, that kids still can get ill. And it's not just the illness that we're concerned about. It's other things that, um, that COVID can also present. So in the pandemic and what we've seen is that um, the isolation from others, having being sick and not being able to participate, not being able to attend school or preschool can be a concern. But also um, in that age group, we've had kids that lose their caregivers. And so they get sick, the caregivers who might be higher risk can get sick from children. And that's been devastating to um, children, not just in the United States, but all over the world. And so we see that with that concerns, we add those concerns up and looking at the vaccine, which is both safe and effective, that's where our recommendation comes. So it's giving families that information and helping they become more comfortable with using it that we hope we can um, help them down that path. So I'm glad you mentioned that because I am really curious, especially like kids in that six months to five years old range, how likely are these really little kids to spread COVID? Are they, I can't imagine that they're really that out and about. So I'm just kind of curious about that. So they don't go out and about by themselves but they do attend preschool, many do. They do go to play groups and they do interact. They're not always the most, uh, know all the hygienic rules. So you'll see those kids, they go and play, they touch everything, they look at things. They're right there, they want hugs, they wanna be right up there. So they do have ways of spreading things. So in talking with, with families and their concerns, um, they can definitely spread it. In terms of who spreads it more, a four-year-old or a 14-year-old, or it really depends on how much contact they have with other people. And some of those little kids do have contact with a lot of people, especially in the daycare and preschool setting. You know, I, I guess I never really realized how, um, social like I don't know this might sound kind of ignorant but I just didn't really realize how many people like babies came into contact with because when I was writing my questions I was like oh well they probably come into contact with like their parents <laughs> that makes that makes a lot more sense and they have siblings and those siblings go to different schools they might go to an elementary school and also a high school so there is the it's it's a web we all have a web of kind of interactions that we have so they're certainly not on the bubble i mean there are some kids who might live alone with their family in an in-home that don't go to any kind of babysitter or preschool and absolutely those kids have less contact but there are a lot of kids who have a lot of different angles in which they interact with people so do you think that people are more hesitant to vaccinate their babies and really little kids than themselves? Absolutely. 
for multiple reasons. One is that you see these little babies, you see these perfect little creatures that we've created, and it's really hard sometimes to go, I don't want them to go through the, the discomfort of getting the shot or potential concerns of they might have some effects like fever, discomfort. You don't want them to go, go through that. As parents, it's our, it's our natural desire to want to protect our children. And so having to think about it in a different way in terms of you are protecting your child, you're protecting your child from a particular virus or bacteria or other things that could harm them in the future. That's sometimes harder to like take in, weigh and make that decision. And so by giving them the information, giving them by the facts that we have out there and helping them to understand the medical side point is our hope that they can put all that information together and go, oh, I am protecting my child, even though there might be some discomfort they go through in the moment that in the long run, we are protecting them from something that could be more severe or, or lead to death or to someone else's death, that this is the decision we're going to make. Gotcha. Do you see any correlation between parents who have had COVID and getting their children vaccinated and those who haven't had COVID? Have I seen a correlation? I think that probably, yes, there is some. I couldn't give you numbers, but a lot of the parents who might've had COVID might be ones who weren't vaccinated. So that's the belief system and the comfort that they're coming from. So those might be parents who are also less um, comfortable with their children having that vaccine as well. So for those of us who have been vaccinated, we know like, I know like my arm was aching. I was a little woozy. So what is it like for a six month old in the first few days of getting the shot? So they have similar side effects to what we have after getting the vaccine. They, in the studies that they showed, they did have some irritability and some, you know, kind of fussiness, general not feeling well. Um, and some of the similar, you know, discomfort, fever, maybe some headaches and that kind of feeling. So it's real similar um, to what we have as adults and, and younger um, adults as well. Something that I'm personally curious about um, today while I was at work, I was telling my boss about how I had my interview after work. And she told me that she wasn't going to get her. She has a little boy who's like two years old. And she told me that she wasn't going to get him vaccinated because he already had COVID. Is that something like should children who have already had COVID, should they not get vaccinated? Should they get vaccinated? I thought that was an interesting point. It is. And it's a good question to ask yourself. So if you've already gotten COVID, then theoretically your body should have formed some of those antibodies to help keep you protected. And it is correct in saying that you do have some protection, but the studies, and we've had these past two years to um, um, make these observations and studies that show that if you get vaccinated in addition, even if you've had um, COVID or why, you have better protection for the future. So by having both natural immunity you might got from getting COVID specifically, if additionally you get vaccinated, then that is better coverage to help protect you from getting it again. I, what I'm really hearing is, you know, like babies have like great immune systems, they're tough, but they're not indestructible. Absolutely right. <laughs> okay. We'll be right back. Alaska Teen Media Institute is looking for youth to join our team. 
As a youth producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. And all of that is paid work. So, if you are between the ages of 13 and 24 living in Alaska and interested in joining at me, go to alaskateenmedia.org slash join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to Quinn's interview with Dr. Michelle Nace. Even before COVID started, vaccines for kids were really a hot button issue. In your experience, how have COVID vaccines and all of the misinformation around them affected the overall culture of vaccinations? Um, that's a great observation, and it has affected it. And it, there's a couple different reasons out there, I think, that it's affected them. One is initially, you heard the, the um, battle cry of stay home, don't leave your house, stay home, let us take care of other people who might have an increased concern after, in this pandemic. So people heard that and they stayed home and they prioritized their health and sometimes well child care or immunizations got deprioritized and so people didn't come in for the vaccination so they missed some. So that would happen. People weren't going to school. And so one of the things that keeps people in check with getting their vaccination is that check off and going to school. So they didn't have that kind of system. People started to really look more at the science and, and the information and more information was being out there right in front of them about vaccination and some of the misinformation and disinformation that was coming, I think made people a little more uncomfortable about vaccinating their children and themselves. So what we did see is a downtick in the number of people who were willing to get vaccinations for themselves as well as their children. So it did affect it in that way. And the last thing we need on top of a pandemic is a breakouts of, of illnesses that we know are preventable for, by getting vaccinations, like things like measles and outbreaks or mumps, other things that still are around, but are kept in check by vaccinations. Another thing that I'm curious about is I, like, I know that COVID is especially harmful to people that are elderly or have compromised immune systems. But I also keep hearing that kids have really great immune systems. So when we talk about babies, are they, so to speak, like the safest or are they still developing? Does that make any sense? Yes, it does. And so um, right now, the um, vaccination for COVID is approved from six months and older. And so in that age group, yes, we all have different immune systems in, in a way, individually and just as age, you can kind of put them in different in different buckets about how they fight against um, different viruses or bacteria that they might come against. So there is difference both individually and by age groups. So in terms of if you are looking at like how COVID affects that youngest age group versus the next, there are differences, but it's not incredibly phenomenally different, you know, in that 
um, four-year-old versus a seven-year-old versus a nine-year-old, they really start to see the differences as you get up in that older adult age. That's where you really start to see the risk stratification really marked. And I think we've seen that just in the number of deaths and the number of severe illness, the number of people hospitalized by age. Definitely you see that in that older age group, above 50, above 60, and above 70 and 80. You definitely see um, increased risk stratifications. So if young kids are generally at a low risk of serious illness or death from COVID, why should they get vaccinated? I think I'd go back to the a similar thing I was going a path down. There are other things besides death and severe illness. So just being admitted to a hospital can be a traumatic event for a child. Children shouldn't die. They shouldn't have to have severe illness and be in the hospital. So that can be traumatic in there. I think the um, missing out on social kind of events, that's a huge part of it. A younger kid, even an old, an, a teenager, and you look at all those, that was a very important thing to protecting mental health. So by not being in a uh, higher risk category of getting illness or being a close contact and the illness that could come secondary to that, those are things that also push you into thinking about getting vaccinated. Then there's the secondary effects that we haven't touched on this, the long COVID. So not just getting acute COVID where, oh, it's like a simple thing about a um, uh, virus, like a cold or a common flu that might come and just kind of go. There are things called long COVID that we're seeing in populations. And we don't know exactly what makes a person get it or not, but basically is after your acute time, instead of going back to ground where you were prior to being illness, where you could participate, run, jump, do all those things, think like you normally can, you might experience some symptoms that last a little bit longer. And we're seeing in that kid, in that and kids well. The things we hear about is I just can't participate in that sport I might have been doing. Just getting up is hard. I have brain fog. I can't concentrate on the things I might have been able to do. I can't sleep right. And my head hurts. I have headaches um, and other kind of symptoms that are prolonged over the weeks to months after COVID, just not getting back. We've heard it in adults. It happens in kids too. There's also something um, that we see in kids, more specific to kids than adult, which is called mostly system inflammatory syndrome or MISC. And that's something that happens again after acute COVID. So you might get COVID, get over COVID. And then in the two to six week time period after that, some subgroup of kids are getting this inflammatory response in their body that um, leads to fever, to gastrointestinal upset um, and can affect their entire body with just inflammation. And we get concerned, especially because it affects their vasculature and heart. And so some of those kids, um, when that happens, you need to treat it right away and they need to get medical care to be able to keep um, prevent from death or severe illness in that time period. So by just getting COVID and getting over COVID does not get you out of those secondary problems that can, that can happen. And then we also talked a little bit about how it affects the caregivers. And we know that um, just in the U US alone, over 200,000 kids have lost a primary caregiver secondary to COVID. And that is traumatic. That might not affect the health right there of that child in that moment, but living without that caregiver that has been the one there to take care of them, that is a serious trauma that can affect them. And over 
five, if you look at the world itself, over 5 million kids have lost a caregiver um, from COVID-19. And that's not a little, that's not insubstantial. That is incredibly important to the well-being of a child. Yeah, all the, what I, everything I hear about long COVID is honestly terrifying, <laughs> really scary stuff. Yeah. You not being able to do what you normally thought we're used to, especially kids, they're healthy. They get their illness, they get over it and they go on to think that you get your illness, think you're over it, but it's still plaguing part of you as you try to participate in the things you did before. Um, that would be a brutal thing to have happen after COVID. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So with all this we've been talking about at this point in the pandemic, do you think that kids should be masking in schools this fall? So I believe the primary thing we want is to get those kids back in the buildings and have in-person learning. We can see, we have learned, we've learned that kids thrive when they have that interaction and that in-person learning. Initially, when the pandemic started and we didn't have information, we didn't have vaccination, we didn't know the tools to use to help in this pandemic, the decision might've been different as we had to figure things out. We have new information. In 2022, this summer, it's a different set of um, tools that we have than we had in March of 2020. So, Masking is a tool. It's one other mitigation strategy that, that can be used depending on what's going on in your environment. So the decision to mask would be a decision that communities make based on what is going on. Are they able to distance and do social distance um, in that general area? Um, are they having a bump up? Is there a, a, um, a part of the pandemic that they're seeing lots of cases? Are they um, in a, a high risk group that puts them at a higher risk to have severe COVID? You need to take all of that information in terms of also what's the ventilation in there um, and put that all together and make that decision in that specific school community, what works best for them. So, it's, so I don't think every kid should walk in always wearing a mask. I think it's a tool to use. How can we best use this given our specific um, conditions that are going on right now to make it one more tool in our toolbox to help get through this pandemic. Sounds like it's not a black or white answer. Everybody I've asked is kind of like what you said. It's yeah, it's just one tool in your toolbox, right? All right. Well, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you might like to add? One of the things that um, I have seen happen is you mentioned it is the misinformation that's out there that a lot of times we get educated by uh, might be might be on social media or a friend or a relative well-meaning wanting to share the information they have about decisions you might make about your health or the health of your family because so i would just encourage to take that as one more bite of information that you factor into other areas where you can get education well in terms of the cdc or the american academy of pediatrics um, or other sources that have been um, vetted to be able to help determine what decision is really the right one for your family. And so my recommendation is when you're making these, sure, listen to what people are saying, but use that as just one slice of information 
also go to the ones that have been um, vetted through science um, and using those information, using those words, using the details, using the data, and it's constantly changing, use that information as well to help make you more comfortable with the decision that you're making for your family. That makes a whole lot of sense. And I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so, so much. You're welcome. I'm glad that we were able to answer some of your questions. That was at me, producer Quinn White, speaking with pediatrician, Dr. Michelle Nace. You've been listening to Podcasts in Place from Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Devin Schreckengost with additional music from Kendrick Whiteman. You can find these stories at alaskateenmedia.org, where we have included resources for youth in partnership with the State of Alaska Division of Behavioral Health. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including United Way of Anchorage for the Healthy Communities Funding Program and the CDC Foundation Arts and Vaccine Confidence Project. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of our funders. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like at me. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our series on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And don't forget to check out our website, alaskateenmedia.org. There, you can learn more about what our organization does, discover more youth-produced content, or find out how to get involved. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Nikki. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. We'll get through this together.